0: Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading Chapters 16 and 17 of A Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 16 The Eastern Tunnel The next day was Tuesday, the 30th of June, and at six o'clock in the morning we resumed our journey. We still continued to follow the gallery of lava, a perfect natural pathway, as easy of descent as some of those inclined planes which in very old German houses, serve the purpose of staircases. This went on until seventeen minutes past twelve, the precise instant at which we rejoined Hans, who, having been somewhat in advance, had suddenly stopped. At last, cried my uncle, We have reached the end of the shaft. I looked wonderingly about me. We were in the centre of four cross paths, sombre and narrow tunnels. The question now arose as to which it was wise to take, and this of itself was no small difficulty. My uncle, who did not wish to appear to have any hesitation about the matter before myself or the guide, at once made up his mind. He pointed quietly to the eastern tunnel, and, without delay, we entered within its gloomy recesses. Besides, Had he entertained any feeling of hesitation, it might have been prolonged indefinitely, for there was no indication by which to determine on a choice. It was absolutely necessary to trust to chance and good fortune. The descent of this obscure and narrow gallery was very gradual and winding. Sometimes we gazed through a succession of arches, its course very like the aisles of a gothic cathedral. The great artistic sculptors and builders of the Middle Ages might have here completed their studies with advantage Many most beautiful and suggestive ideas of architectural beauty would have been discovered by them. After passing through this phase of the cavernous way, we suddenly came, about a mile further on, upon a square system of arch adopted by the early Romans, projecting from the solid rock and keeping up the weight of the roof. Suddenly, we would come upon a series of low, subterranean tunnels which looked like beaver holes or the work of foxes, through whose narrow and winding ways we literally had to crawl the heat still remained at quite a supportable degree. With an involuntary shudder, I reflected on what the heat must have been when the volcano of Sneffels was pouring its smoke, flames, and streams of boiling lava, all of which must have come up by the road we were now following. I could imagine the torrents of hot, seething stone darting on, bubbling up with companions of smoke, steam, and sulfurous stench. Only to think of the consequences, I mused, if the old volcano were once more to set to work, I did not communicate these rather unpleasant reflections to my uncle. He not only would not have understood them, but would have been intensely disgusted. His only idea was to go ahead. He walked, he slid, he clambered over piles of fragments He rolled down heaps of broken lava. With an eagerness and conviction, it was impossible not to admire. At six o'clock in the evening, after a very wearisome journey, but one not so fatiguing as before, we had made six miles towards the southward but had not gone more than a mile downwards. My uncle, as usual, gave the signal to halt. We ate our meal in thoughtful silence and then retired to sleep. Our arrangements for the night were very primitive and simple. A travelling rug in which each rolled himself was all our bedding. We had no necessity to fear cold or any unpleasant visit. Travellers who buried themselves in the wilds and depths of the African desert, who seek profit and pleasure in the forest of the new world, are compelled to take it in turn to watch during the hours of sleep. But in this region of the earth, absolute solitude and complete security reigned supreme. We had nothing to fear either from savages or from wild beasts, After a night's sweet repose, we awoke fresh and ready for action. There being nothing to detain us, we started on our journey. We continued to burrow through the lava tunnel as before. It was impossible to make out through what soil we were making way. The tunnel, moreover, instead of going down into the bowels of the earth, became absolutely horizontal. I even thought, after some examination, that we were actually tending upwards. About ten o'clock in the day, this state of things became so clear that, finding the change very fatiguing, I was obliged to slacken my pace and finally come to a halt. Well, said the professor quickly, what is the matter? The fact is, I am dreadfully tired, was my earnest reply. What? Cried my uncle, tired after a three hours walk, and by so easy a road. Easy enough, I dare say, but very fatiguing. But how can that be when all we have done is to go downwards? I beg your pardon, sir, for some time. I have noticed that we are going upwards. Upwards, cried my uncle, shrugging his shoulders. How can that be? There can be no doubt about it. For the last half hour, the slopes have been upwards, and if we go on this way much longer, we shall find ourselves back in iceland my uncle shook his head with the air of a man who does not want to be convinced i tried to continue the conversation he would not answer me but once more gave the signal for departure his silence i thought was only caused by concentrated ill-temper. However this might be, I once more took up my load and boldly and resolutely followed Hans, who was now in advance of my uncle. I did not like to be beaten or distanced. I was naturally Naturally anxious not to lose sight of my companions, the very idea of being left behind, lost in that terrible labyrinth, made me shiver with ague. Besides, if the ascending path was more arduous and painful to clamber. I had one source of secret consolation and delight. It was to all appearance taking us back to the surface of the earth. That of itself was hopeful. Every step I took confirmed me in my belief, and I began already to build castles in the air in relation to my marriage with my pretty little cousin. About twelve o'clock, there was a great and sudden change in the aspect of the rocky sides of the gallery. I first noticed it from the diminution of the rays of light, which cast back the reflection of the lamp. From being coated with shining and resplendent lava, it became living rock. The sides were sloping walls, which sometimes became quite vertical. We were now in what the geological professors call a state of transition in the period of Silurian stones, So called because this specimen of early formation is very common in England in the counties formerly inhabited by the Celtic nation, known as the Siluris. I can see clearly now, I cried, the sediment from the waters which once covered the whole earth formed during the second period of its existence, these schists and these calcareous rocks. We are turning our backs on the granite rocks and are like people from Hamburg who would go to Lübeck by way of Hanover. I might just as well have kept my observations to myself My geological enthusiasm got the better, however, of my cooler judgment, and Professor Hardwig heard my observations. What is the matter now, he said, in a tone of great gravity. Well, cried I, do you not see these different layers of calcareous rocks? and the first indication of Slate Strata. Well, what then? We have arrived at that period of the world's existence when the first plants and the first animals made their appearance. You think so? Yes, look, examine and judge for yourself, I induced the professor, with some difficulty, to cast the light of his lamp on the sides of the long, winding gallery. I expected some exclamation to burst from his lips. I was very much mistaken. The worthy professor never spoke a word it was impossible to say whether he understood me or not. Perhaps it was possible that in his pride, my uncle, a learned professor, he did not like to own that he was wrong in having chosen the Eastern Tunnel. Or was he determined at any price to go to the end of it, it was quite evident we had left the region of lava, and that the road by which we were going could not take us back to the great crater of Mount Sneffels. As we went along, I could not help ruminating on the whole question, and asked myself if I did not lay too great a stress on these sudden and peculiar modifications of the Earth's crust. After all, I was very likely to be mistaken, and it was within the range of probability and possibility that we were not making our way through the strata of rocks which I believed I recognized, piled on the lower layers "'of the granatic formation. "'At all events, if I am right,' I thought to myself, "'I must certainly find some remains of primitive plants, "'and it would be absolutely necessary to give way to such indubitable evidence. "'Let us have a good search.' I accordingly lost no opportunity of searching, and had not gone more than about a hundred yards when the evidence I sought for cropped up in the most incontestable manner before my eyes. It was quite natural that I should expect to find these signs, for during the Silurian period, the seas contained no fewer than 1,500 different animals and vegetable species. My feet, so long accustomed to the hard and arid lava soil, suddenly found themselves treading on a kind of soft dust the remains of plants and shells upon the walls themselves i could clearly make out the outline as plain as a sun picture of the fucus and the lycopods the worthy and excellent professor hardwig could not of course make any mistake about the matter but I believe he deliberately closed his eyes and continued on his way with a firm and unalterable step. I began to think that he was carrying his obstinacy a great deal too far. I could no longer act with prudence or composure. I stooped on a sudden and picked up an almost perfect shell, which had undoubtedly belonged to some small animal, very much resembling some of the present day. Having secured the prize, I followed in the wake of my uncle. Do you see this? I said. Well, said the professor, with the most imperturbable tranquillity. It is the shell of a crustaceous animal of the extinct order of the trilobites. Nothing more, I assure you. But, cried I, much troubled at his coolness, do you draw no conclusion from it? Well, if I may ask, What conclusion do you draw from it? Well, I thought. I know, my boy, what you would say, and you are right, perfectly and incontestably right. We have finally abandoned the crust of lava, and the road by which the lava ascended. It is quite possible... That I may have been mistaken, but I shall be unable to discover my error until I get to the end of this gallery. You are quite right as far as that is concerned, I replied, and I should highly approve of your decision, if we had not to fear the greatest of all dangers." And what is that? Want of water. Well, my dear Henry, it can't be helped. We must put ourselves on rations. And on he went. Chapter 17 Deeper and Deeper The Coal Mine In truth, we were compelled to put ourselves upon rations. Our supply would certainly last not more than three days. I found this out about supper time. The worst part of the matter was that, in what is called the transition rocks, it was hardly to be expected we should meet with water. I had read of the horrors of thirst, and I knew that where we were, a brief trial of its sufferings would put an end to our adventure and our lives. But it was utterly useless to discuss the matter with my uncle he would have answered by some axiom from Plato. During the whole of the next day, we proceeded on our journey through this interminable gallery, arch after arch, tunnel after tunnel. We journeyed without exchanging a word, we had become as mute and reticent as Hans, our guide. The road had no longer an upwards tendency. At all events, if it had, it was not to be made out very clearly. Sometimes there could be no doubt that we were going downwards, but this inclination was scarcely to be distinguished and was by no means reassuring to the professor because the character of the strata was in no wise modified and the transition character of the rocks became more and more marked. It was a glorious sight to see how the electric light brought out the sparkles in the walls of the calcareous rocks. It was a glorious sight to see how the electric light brought out the sparkles in the walls of the calcareous rocks and the old red sandstone. One might have fancied oneself in one of those deep cuttings in Devonshire, which have given their name to this kind of soil. Some magnificent specimens of marble projected from the sides of the gallery, some of an agate grey with white veins of variegated character, others of a yellow spotted colour with red veins. Farther off might be seen samples of colour, in which cherry-tinted seams were to be found in all their brightest shades. The great number of these marbles were stamped with the marks of primitive animals. Since the previous evening, nature and creation had made considerable progress. Instead, Of rudimentary trilobites, I perceived the remains of a more perfect order. Among others, the fish in which the eye of a geologist has been able to discover the first form of the reptile. The Devonian seas were inhabited by a vast number of animals of this species which were deposited in tens of thousands of the rocks in new formation. It was quite evident to me that we were ascending the scale of animal life of which man forms the summit. My excellent uncle, the professor, appeared not to take notice of these warnings, he was determined at any risk to proceed. He must have been in expectation of one of two things, either that a vertical well was about to open under his feet and thus allow him to continue his descent, or that some insurmountable obstacle would compel us to stop and go back by the road which had so long been travelled. But evening came again, and to my horror, neither hope was doomed to be realised. On Friday, after a night when I began to feel the gnawing agony of thirst, and when consequence, Appetite decreased. Our little band rose once again. More followed the turnings and windings, the ascents and descents of this interminable gallery. All was silent and gloomy. I could see that even my uncle had ventured too far. After about ten hours of further progress, a progress dull and monotonous to the last degree, I remarked that the reverberation and reflection of our lamps upon the sides of the tunnel had singularly diminished. The marble, the schist, the calcareous rock, the red sandstone had disappeared, leaving in their place a dark and gloomy wall, sombre and without brightness. When we reached a remarkably narrow part of the tunnel, I leaned my left hand against the rock. When I took my hand away and happened to glance at it, it was quite black, we had reached the coal strata of the central earth. A coal mine, I cried. A coal mine without miners, responded my uncle a little severely. How can we tell? I can tell, replied my uncle in a sharp and doctoral tone. I am perfectly certain that this gallery through successive layers of coal was not cut by the hand of man. But whether it is the work of nature or not is of little concern to us. The hour for our evening meal has come. Let us sup. Hands the guide occupied himself in preparing food. I had come to that point when I could no longer eat. All I cared about were the few drops of water which fell to my share. What I suffered it is useless to record. The guide's scored, not quite half full, Was all that was left for the three of us. Having finished their repast, my two companions laid themselves down upon their rugs and found in sleep a remedy for their fatigue and sufferings. As for me, I could not sleep. I lay counting the hours until morning. The next morning, Saturday, at six o'clock, we started again. Twenty minutes later, we suddenly came upon a vast excavation. From its mighty extent, I saw at once that the hand of man could have nothing to do with this coal mine. The vault above would have fallen in. As it was, it was only held together by some miracle of nature. This mighty natural cavern was about a hundred feet wide by about a hundred and fifty high. The earth had evidently been cast apart by some violent subterranean commotion. The mass giving way to some prodigious upheaving of nature, had split in two, leaving the vast gap into which we inhabitants of the earth had penetrated for the first time. The whole singular history of the coal period was written on those dark and gloomy walls. A geologist would have been able to easily follow the different phases of its formation. The seams of coal were separated by strata of sandstone, a compact clay which appeared to be crusted down by the weight from above. All that period of the world which preceded the secondary epoch The earth was covered by a coating of enormous and rich vegetation, due to the double action of tropical heat and perpetual humidity. A vast atmospheric cloud of vapour surrounded the earth on all sides, preventing the rays of the sun from ever reaching it. Hence, the conclusion that these intense heats did not arise from this new source of caloric. Perhaps even the star of day was not quite ready for its brilliant work to illuminate a universe. Climates did not as yet exist, and a level heat pervaded the whole surface of the globe, the same heat existing at the North Pole as at the equator. Whence did it come from the interior of the Earth? In spite of all the learned theories of Professor Hardwig, a fierce and vehement fire, certainly burned within the entrails of the great spheroid. Its action was felt even to the very topmost crust of the earth. The plants then in existence, being deprived of the vivifying rays of the sun, had neither buds, nor flowers, nor odour, but their roots drew a strong and vigorous life from the burning earth of early days. There were but few of what may be called trees, only herbaceous plants, immense turfs, briers, mosses, rare families which, however, in those days... "'were counted by tens and tens of thousands. "'It is entirely to this exuberant vegetation that coal owes its origin. "'The crust of the vast globe still yielded under the influence of the seething, boiling mass, which was forever at work beneath.' Hence arose numerous fissures and continual falling in off the upper Earth. The dense mass of plants being beneath the waters soon formed themselves into vast agglomerations. Then came about the action of natural chemistry in the depths of the ocean. The vegetable mass at first became turf, then, thanks to the influence of gases and subterranean fermentation, they underwent the complete process of mineralization. In this manner, in early days, were formed those vast and prodigious layers of coal, which an ever increasing consumption must utterly use up in about three centuries more, if people do not find some more economic light than gas and some cheaper motive power than steam. All these reflections, the memories of my school studies, came to my mind while I gazed upon these mighty accumulations of coal, whose riches, however, are scarcely likely to ever be utilised. The working of these mines could only be carried out at an expense that would never yield a profit. The matter, however, is scarcely worthy consideration, when coal is scattered over the whole surface of the globe, within a few yards of the upper crust. As I looked at these untouched strata, therefore, I knew they would remain as long as the world lasts. While we still continued our journey, I alone forgot the length of the road by giving myself up wholly to these geological considerations. The temperature continued to be very much the same as while we were travelling amid the lava and the schists. On the other hand, my sense of smell was much affected by a very powerful odour. I immediately knew that the gallery was filled to overflowing with that dangerous gas the miners call fire damp, the explosion of which has caused such fearful and terrible accidents, making a hundred widows and a hundred orphans in a single hour. Happily, We were able to illuminate our progress by means of the Rumkorth apparatus. If we had been so rash and imprudent as to explore this gallery, torch in hand, a terrible explosion would have put an end to our travels, simply because no travelers would be left our excursion through this wondrous coal mine in the very bowel of the earth lasted until evening. My uncle was scarcely able to conceal his impatience and dissatisfaction at the road continuing still to advance in a horizontal direction. The darkness dense and opaque, a few yards in advance and in the rear, rendered it impossible to make out what was the length of the gallery. For myself, I began to believe that it was simply interminable and would go on in the same manner for months. Suddenly, at six o'clock, We stood in front of a wall. To the right, to the left above, below. Nowhere was there any passage. We had reached a spot where the rock said in unmistakable accents, No thoroughfare. I stood stupefied. The guide simply folded his arms My uncle was silent. Well, well, so much the better, cried my uncle at last. I now know what we are about. We are decidedly not upon the road followed by Sorknizam. All we have to do is to go back. Let us take One night's good rest, and before three days are over, I promise you we shall have regained the point where the galleries divided. Yes, we may, if our strength lasts as long, I cried in a lamentable voice. And why not? Tomorrow, among us three... There will be not a drop of water. It is just gone. And our courage with it, said my uncle, speaking in a severe tone. What could I say? I turned round on my side, and from sheer exhaustion fell into a heavy sleep, disturbed by dreams of water and I awoke unrefreshed. I would have bartered a diamond mine for a glass of pure spring water.